Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. Joining us beyond the mic is our friend, Grammy Award-winning songwriter, musician. He founded Survivor. You know him from his songs, Hold On Loosely, Eye of the Tiger, Heavy Metal, and much, much more. Welcome, Jim Peterick. How you doing? Are you well, Sean? I'm absolutely great. It's quarantining. I'm staying at the home studio, and I, I feel good, and so I hope you and yours are uh, feeling well as well. My wife, my grandkids, my son and his wife, all, all good, hunkered down, making the best of it. That's all you can do. Let's go beyond the mic. From being a chubby kid in Berwyn, Illinois, to the Ides of March survivor to today, did you ever dream you'd be here? Oh, man. You, you know, I think when you're 14 and uh, you write your first song, you're just trying to impress the cheerleader that you have your eye on. You know, you're not, you don't have any long range plans or, or grand schemes, you know, and, and that's the way it is, you know, even flashing forward, you know, to vehicle, I wrote that to win my girlfriend back. Here, there's the girls again. It wasn't to, you know, get a hit record or to make a lot of money. Those were kind of, you know, byproducts of a, of a song that really connected with people. Even with Eye of the Tiger, you know, if you were to tell me that song would still be around in 2020 and more kind of a rally cry, even in this day of COVID-19, I wouldn't have an idea that that could happen. We were just writing a song for uh, Rocky Three, two, two fighters in a ring. That was our motivation. So you never know where this life's going to go. So that cheerleader, do you remember her name? Karen. And you married her. How did you know? <laughs> uh, 47 years later i'm still her vehicle baby how have you survived 47 years of marriage you have got to have the secret to marriage success what is it trust one word trust that's what you try never to betray we're all human things happen but when you betray that trust then it shakes up your world and i was on the road you know most of the 80s with every temptation thrown at me in the world, drugs, women, booze, everything. And I just didn't buy in. I, I said, I got something better at home. And instead of partying with, with everybody, I went back to my hotel room with my guitar and tried to write the next tip for a survivor. I'm not trying to be a martyr. Just that was the way I did it. I'm still here talking to you, Sean. It's amazing. Well, you started playing music, as you said, as a teen back in 62. Who gave you your first guitar? Oh, God bless my dad. My dad was a gigging musician. Actually, uh, worked the phone company during the week. And then he was a weekend warrior. And he had a band, a polka band called the High Hatters. And they played all the, you know, VFW Hall and the Lions Club and weddings and bar mitzvahs. And, and he used to take me along, you know, and I played saxophone and I was... 10 years old, but the high point was at midnight after the show, I'd go to the guy with the guys to White Castle, the only place that, that was open, and eat sliders and live that dream. So he was really my inspiration. Okay, for White Castle, are you a pickles on or pickles off kind of guy? Extra pickle. Very nice. What was that first guitar, and do you still have it? I do. Thank God I never sold it. It was a Wandre, W-A-N-D-R-E, made in Italy. My dad knew a guy that knew a guy that got a good deal, has, has an aluminum neck, very advanced, and never wore. Of course, it was kind of a piece of book. It didn't sound very good. But I loved that guitar. 
and I wrote my first hit record, You Wouldn't Listen, that nobody knows about, but it was the number 42 record. It was on Bandstand, and I was 14 years old. So I've been in this a long time. Well, with more than 200 guitars in your arsenal, including a calendar of guitars that followed you home, what's your go-to <laughs> guitar for playing at the house when you're all by yourself? Oh, man. You know, I'm, I'm boring. I love Gibson Les Pauls. Boring because everybody loves Gibson Les Pauls. <laughs> but there's a reason. It's like, you know, one of the Swiss Army knives. If you want to play country, it'll play that. Rock, heavy metal, everything. I've got a wonderful collection of Les Pauls, but the one I like the most, Sean, is the one I played vehicle on. In 1970, I went to the music store on Wabash called Guitar Gallery, not Center Gallery. Wow. And there was a gold, gold tab hanging on the wall with two humbucking pickups. And I put it on layaway, and pretty soon I had $480, and I took it home. And the next week, as happenstance happened, we uh, went in the studio, caught lightning in a bottle with, I'm a friend of a stranger in the black sedan, won't you hop inside my car? And that Les Paul was cranking. And I still have it. I still use it all the time. What's the guitar that you never play because it's so special? That special place where you just look at it, but you never play it. A couple. And usually I, I don't touch them because they're mint condition. And I know that if I stand up with it, my belt buckle will put a, a rash on the back. But I have a, a totally mint Les Paul Black Beauty 3 Pickups Gold Hardware oh. 1958. Oh. Yeah, I don't even take that off the wall. Okay, ready for this, Sean? This may not hit you like that one, but original Fly Gibson Flying V from 1958, one of the 97 ever made, a totally stock Karina hardwood. It it sings. It, it sings. Yeah, and uh, so I won't take that out either because it's worth about roughly 300 grand. Wow. We're talking with author, songwriter, and musician Jim Peterick beyond the mic. Now, some of the members of Ides of March Friendship go all the way back to Cub Scouts. How special are those friends? Scratch that. Extended family to you. Oh, man. Extended family is a great way of saying it. Uh, Bob Berglund and I were in the same Cub Scout pack. It was 1961. Became best friends. I mean, before we even played instruments, we were best friends. Then Larry Mellis was in the, in the same grade school class, and he came, he was a great friend, then Mike Borch. We all ended up in the grade school band together playing various instruments. Bob was on clarinet, I was sax. Mike was percussion, Larry was on percussion. And one day, we got together and we watched the Beatles play the Ed Sullivan show the first time in January, January of 64. And it, like a million other kids got so inspired you know, these guys look great. The girls are screaming. They're writing their own song. We want to do that. And we kind of became the Berwyn Beatles. And we called ourselves the Shondells. And we had to change that name when Tommy James came along. We were all reading Julius Caesar in high school. And, hey, look at this. Beware the Ides of March. Sounds good. Yeah, it did. We're talking to author, songwriter, musician, Jim Peterick, Beyond the Mic. In your book, Through the Eye of the Tiger, you talk about your pitfalls and triumphs. Was there a story you thought should be in the book, but just didn't find its way in? Well, I, I told a lot of stories, but I, I couldn't go into some of the, you know, the more personal stuff, because 
there'd be people that'd be very offended. So I don't regret anything, you know, in the book. And I'm pretty honest with it. People get a lot of inspiration from it because I didn't have it as easy as people think. There was a lot of struggles, you know, within the band, uh, Survivor, that you had to just soldier through. Of course, at the time, my girlfriend dumped me. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, everybody has those stories. And I put it all down there, but there's a few things in the Naked City that just will never be revealed. I want you to talk about Empty Arena in a time where COVID-19 has shut down arenas and all entertainment. Talk about this song. and Yeah, thanks so much for bringing that up. It, it's my current passion project. I was sitting at home like most people about three weeks ago. All of a sudden, you know, there's this concert by one of my favorite groups, Black Crows. Incredible band. And lo and behold, they're playing to an empty theater. And that's the first time I've seen that. And I thought that was so cool because they were going to let COVID-19 stop them from this reunion. They wanted to get their music out there in a new way and share that with their fans. And I was so inspired by that. And then the next day you see, you know, other artists like Chris Martin and so many other artists sharing what they do. I went to the piano and I was just really inspired. And I started kind of doodling around and pretending I'm Elton John. Came up with this kind of pattern. And then I came up with the lyric, you know, what if the team scored a touchdown and nobody cheered? What if the band played their big encore with no one to hear? Started flowing. And then the chorus hits and I go, this is the sound of one hand clapping in the empty arena. Oh, man, I got it, man, I got it. But I didn't want it to be a a hopeless thing. So by the end of the the last chorus, bring back the sound of music and laughter to this empty arena. Hope is more contagious than any disease. That's really the true message of the song. When this thing stops, and there will be an end point, believe it or not, we have faith in that. Can you imagine, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. We took so for granted the ability to gather, you know, in concerts, in theaters, in clubs, anywhere, restaurants, and hug, and shake hands, all these things that everybody takes for granted. When it all comes back, we are going to be appreciating all that so much more than ever. Well, where are the proceeds going for this song? Music Cares. Music Cares is a wonderful organization that's led up by the Grammy Foundation, NARIS, National Academy of Recording Arts. And they're really doing a number here. We did a streaming show uh, last week, raised $5,000 just from uh, people watching the stream. It was just a one guitar and me and a one-man show. And I did you know, my greatest hits, ended with MT Arena, took requests. And I realized people want to give and this benefits the the gigging musician it's not you know the the groups that have a million dollars in the bank this is for groups that and artists that rely on these shows to put food on their table we all know a band that's starving that had 40 gigs or more canceled and they don't know what to do well this fund is created for them and now every time you, you download my song empty arena on itunes spotify apple music Amazon, a big portion of that, goes to Music Cares. This isn't about making money for for Jim Peter. It's about supporting musicians. Well, you've raised money for many charities over the years. Why is giving back so important to you? Because it's going to touch everybody eventually. I, I do things for the H Foundation, 
at, it's an event called the Goombay Bash at the Grand, Grand Ballroom on Navy Pier. Every year I'm on the board. Why do I do it? Because I love the people that run it, but also because we all know somebody that is touched by the big C. You know, I'm talking about Corona this time. I'm talking about cancer. And uh, my mother had breast cancer and fought it and won. Uh, but we all know someone, and someday it might be you. I don't mean you, Sean, but us, you know. So you, you pay it forward, and you, you take your guitar, you raffle your guitar, you play Eye of the Tiger and Vehicle, and then you throw the guitar into the crowd and raise sometimes five grand for one guitar. It all comes back to you. Play with a who's who of rock. Skinner, Loverboy, Doobie Brothers, Dennis D. Young. Who would you still love to jam with but haven't found the time to? Well, unfortunately, that person is no longer with us. My whole lower level, which is a studio, is called Lennon's Dead. John Lennon was, was really my hero. And uh, as a songwriter, as a kind of contra, he was not an easy guy to get along with, apparently. I never met John. I met Sir Paul, and I met George Harrison. I never met John, but I would have loved to have known him. I would have loved to have co-written a song with him. Just a, a genius and an amazing person. Where's the weirdest place that you've gotten an idea for a song? Oh, wow. That, that's that's a, pretty, a pretty deep question. Uh, hmm. Trying to think. Well, one time the Ides of March played a metal institution. What? And uh, it was so unbelievable. It was like, not a real nice one either. I mean, I can still smell it. It was, it was like Chicago. It's where they kind of dump the people that are crazy. And I was just so, so bummed out. It, and it was so terrible. And I got home and I wrote one of the most beautiful songs that the Ides March ever recorded. It was called Home because I wanted to get out of that place. I mean, I respected the people. I felt sorry for them, but I couldn't live there. So I, I came up with this line, home, that's where my future lies, in a blue satin gown that I bought her uptown for a birthday surprise. So it was kind of like a reaction to that very, very tough experience. How does it feel to have mentored your son, Colin, in the music industry? Oh, well, it's one of my proudest uh, achievements, really. I mean, just having Colin, Karen and I were trying for years to have a baby. And one day when we gave up and gave it up to uh, you-know-who. She found out she was pregnant. It was one of the greatest days of our lives. And lo and behold, Colin became an amazing musician. Never pushed him into it because that doesn't work. But all of a sudden, we uh, we had a birthday party, and he goes to the piano and plays a spot-on happy birthday, and he was eight years old. I go, okay, this kid's got the gene. I feel sorry for him, <laughs> but I got to help him. You know, I did everything I could, and now he's got the Jam Lab, this great studio of, of Brooklyn Charmers, which is one of the top Steely Dan tribute bands, where he's, he's the Fagan, singing lead and playing guitar. And every day, we listen to music together, and he gave me two grandchildren with his wife, Meredith. So proud of that kid. There's got to be something special about recording in a studio. What's your favorite studio story? I mean, come on, a sound engineer almost ruined your chance at stardom by erasing 14 seconds from a master. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you're right. Studios, to me, are, it's like Mecca. You know, a great studio brings out the best in a musician. I'm, I'm blessed to have 
one in, in my home. I wake up, go down the hall. I have a state-of-the-art studio, with, you know, digital and Neve preamps and all the great mics. Larry Millis, the Ads of March, is my engineer. But through the years, you know, I mean, we the Ads of March recorded at some of the best studios, RCA Studios in Chicago. We were in Studio B. Alice Cooper was in Studio A back in 1971. We got to know them. And these funny boxes, they would plug their guitar in, but these funny little wheels going around. We're going, what is that? And Alice goes, oh, it's a, it's a tuner. It's an oscilloscope. And we thought that was so unusual, actually, tuning up between takes. We would go to the piano and go ding, 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 you know. Wow. But RCA was great. Yeah, and then RCA uh, on the West West Coast, we recorded there. Met Elvis Presley in the lobby. That was a pretty great moment. Met David Bowie there as well, as all these RCA recorders. But then Survivor, we were the cream of the crop studios, record plant C in, in L.A. with Ron Nevison, our very first album. I mean, that room, you hear it on Eddie Money songs, you hear it on We Just Disagree by Dave Mason. It has a sound to it. If you hear that first album, it's pretty incredible. And then uh, uh, the Eye of the Tiger album was cut at a studio called Rumbo, which was owned by the Captain and Tennille. We couldn't record in the in the main room because it was too dead. It was this enormous room, and it was acoustically dead. So Frankie and I carried a snare drum all around the complex, ended up recording Eye of the Tiger and all the songs from Permanition in the kitchen, in the wooden kitchen underneath the uh, oven hood. And boy, did we pissed off that studio because they knew they couldn't bring people in while we were playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, time's running out, so it's time for the Rocking Eight. First thing that comes to your mind, no pressure. As a songwriter, every song is a part of you. Which one song is a bigger piece of you than any other? Oh, man. I, I would have to say uh, The Search is Over, uh, the song that I co-wrote with Fraggy for the Vital Signs album. We were just transitioning singers. Dave Bickler, uh, the great singer who sang Eye of the Tiger with the beret, that guy, yep. uh, left the band because he uh, injured his voice and needed a few years off. And we were auditioning singers, which is always a harrowing process. One day, a, a fellow came in from Memphis on recommendation. His name was Jimmy Jameson. The first song uh, that I taught him to sing for the audition was Broken Promise, because me and Frankie had just written that. And he sang it in my ear, and I, I still have goosebumps thinking of the sound of his voice. And the second song was something we had almost, I don't think we had finished yet. We had the main body of the song done. It's called The Search Is Over. And he he lit up the PA. I mean, we had this crappy PA, but he made it sound great because his voice was so good. The first time through, we're, we're doing it in, uh, in E flat. Uh, and he goes to that high note on the chorus, and I looked into your eyes. And he, his voice cracked on eyes. And I looked at Frankie as, oh, we better lower it, you know, a, a half step. And Jimmy gave us the famous line that I'll never forget. He says, uh, hey, give half a man a chance. <laughs> and I love that line. So, so give half a man a chance. So we played it again in E flat. And man, did he hit that clean, you know? <sighs> and we learned, we learned that Jameson just would do anything for a great vocal performance. Just a total pro person you wish you could give one more hug to my mother last thing on your bucket list writing another million seller one song of yours that you feel is the most unappreciated 
Let's see. Okay, got it. Man against the world. Okay, tell me your favorite car to enjoy a Sunday drive with. I hate to sound like this, but my 08 Lamborghini Gallardo convertible. It's okay. Favorite thing to do when you're at home? Drink it old-fashioned with Karen and play Crazy Eights. One thing people don't know about you. I don't really have purple hair. And finally, what advice would you give someone just starting out? You know, a lot of people say, follow your dream. Yeah, but make sure your dream is the realistic dream. If you're a musician, make sure it comes to you naturally. You know, I mean, there's something about practice. You got to have a certain amount of ability, though. I would say play in front of people as much as possible. Get loose, get comfortable with an audience because you're going to need it if you truly have that gift. He once met Elvis Presley in a recording studio lobby, wrote his first song to influence a cheerleader and been married to her for 47 years and wants you to buy Empty Arena to help out the Music Cares Foundation. It is Jim Peterick. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sean. Uh, I love your your questions. You're a, a true music fanatic. Nobody's asked me about my guitar collection in a long time. And recording studios, come on. That's where I live, man. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Be good. Well, thanks for having me. Rock steady and stay well. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. 